we say in the field all the time, if you've seen one brain injury, you've seen one brain injury. So how a brain injury impacts somebody's behavior is so wholly unique. However, there are some pretty global things that are happening. And so oftentimes people who struggle with brain injuries may struggle with impulsivity, with reasoning, with problem solving skills. And so we, we you know, when we look at, at how we uh, score an LSI even, and how we translate those behaviors, we're trained to translate those behaviors through the lens of criminogenic needs. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Colorado Judicial Department. The Colorado Judicial Department assumes no responsibility or liability for any error or omission in the content of this podcast. Information provided in this podcast should not be considered to be legal advice and is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness or accuracy. Beyond the Collabo Babble is now in session. Beyond the Collabo Babble. Meet the people behind the studies, programs, projects, and initiatives. Beyond the Collabo Babble. Keeping you motivated and focused through the challenges. Beyond the Collabo Babble. Sparking innovation, improvement, and reform. Beyond the Collabo Babble. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead. Welcome to Beyond the Collabo Babble, a podcast committed to sharing stories of collaboration, systems improvement, and systems reform in the Colorado courts and introducing you to the people leading these efforts and taking action. The star of today's podcast is Russia Nauer, probation service analyst at the State Court Administrator's Office. I am your Collabo Babble host, Bill Delisio, the Family Law Program Manager at the Colorado State Court Administrator's Office, Court Services Division. On today's episode, we will be talking about traumatic brain injury and risk-need responsivity. Good morning, Russia. How are you today? Hi, Bill. Uh, I am great today. How are you? Doing good. It's Friday afternoon or early mid-morning, and and I just want to thank you for agreeing to be on the podcast. You're going to be my, I think, really my third guest from the probation services Glenn did an interview with Steven and I, and I interviewed Angel around um, sex offender management and she suggested that I talk to you about traumatic brain injuries and risk need responsivity. And so I'm really excited to, to dig into this with you today and, and uh, looking forward to, to learning some new information. Uh, I am sincerely honored to be here and super excited to share because this is the culmination of a lot of really great work uh, with a lot of partner agencies over a period of about nine years. So, All right. Yeah. 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 So so the first question is, what does Beyond the Collabo Babble mean to you? To me, it really kind of gets down to thinking beyond high-level words and scientific jargon that we use to describe the work that we do every day and thinking about how does this really show up? What does it look like? How do we impact the lives of the people that we're here to serve, both the professionals and the people who walk through the doors of our courthouses and probation departments every day? Now, can you talk to the audience uh, about your background, the journey that led you to the judicial department, to probation services, just uh, how long you've been with the branch? Just paint us a picture of who you are professionally, and, and if there's some personal information you want to include, feel free. <laughs> uh, I 
uh, went to college in the at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, uh, what it's known as the Surfing College at, of the UNC system, and majored in psychology, and came back to Colorado because uh, the Denver area has a lot of great grad schools. And I knew I wanted a, an advanced degree, but I didn't know what I wanted to do that degree in. And my undergrad program, the professors were really adamant that people work in the field before they they dive in and think that they want to do research or continue a, a career in counseling or anything of the sort. So they really encouraged that people take a break after their undergrad and, and do some practical work. And I came back and started my work working in houses staffed by mental health of uh, the Mental Health Corporation of Denver. They were residential programs for people with dual diagnosis issues. So I worked primarily in houses uh, that served people with schizophrenia and substance use disorders. And then I got a job as a counselor at a program serving youth placed out of home by the Division of Youth Corrections and ended up with that agency running three different group homes, uh, all with the aim of serving kids who were high risk and high criminogenic needs and were going to transition to independent living. And then I became a parole officer with the Division of Youth Corrections, did that for a lot of years, and then I came over to the Division of Probation Services as an education specialist. My graduate work is specifically geared towards implementation. And so I applied for the Analyst 3 job in probation services because our positions are designed to support judicial districts as they engage in uh, implementation of research-informed practices. And so, of course, I applied for that job because it's like my dream job. And luckily, I got it. And so I've been doing this work for about seven years. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And and so let's start by uh, explaining to the audience what a traumatic brain injury is and maybe what a traumatic brain injury is not. Just like, let's get some baseline. Some of us, some of the listeners may know a lot about this. But maybe they have have never even heard of it or they don't know a lot about it. I know I'm in that category. So just let's start there. Okay. Traumatic brain injuries, I think, are really, I think that the attention being paid to them is really comes from the field of football and uh, youth sports concussions, which is fantastic. Certainly, when I started this work, I thought that traumatic brain injuries were concussions only where there was a loss of consciousness. And I've since learned that that's actually not true. A traumatic brain injury is an external blow to the head that results in an alteration of consciousness. So that could mean that you just had your bell rung. Uh, You saw stars. You got dizzy for a second. It doesn't mean that you had to have loss of consciousness at all or that you blacked out. None of that actually has to happen. And traumatic brain injuries are a subsection of acquired brain injuries. And acquired brain injuries are anything that results in an altered state of consciousness and typically due to loss of oxygen to the brain. So I think that there is a lot of Uh, room for us to grow in regards to what we think traumatic brain injuries are and the role that acquired brain injuries likely play in the functioning of a lot of the people that we serve. Okay. So, so part of the reason this is an important topic is because there could be somebody who has, I mean, when I hear traumatic brain injury, I'm thinking of something severe, like you said, being knocked out 
cold, but that's not it. Maybe you just hit your head, getting into your car really hard and had to sit there for a minute or two and gather yourself like, wow, I almost knocked myself out there. That could be, that could lead to a change of consciousness, a change in the way your brain functions. Um, And so then that's going to impact your ability. I'm guessing from a probation standpoint to understand terms and conditions, to follow through on terms and conditions, to truly know what's happening to you or what somebody's asking you to do. Or maybe today your brain function was more along the lines of what it was before this injury, but tomorrow your experience and difficulty. And so you're looking at a person going, I told you this last week and you seem to totally agree and understand. And today you're like, it's like, it literally is like you got hit in the head and you're trying to figure out what's going on. Is, is that part of the reason this came to the forefront for you and probation services and probation officers? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that what you're talking about is certainly the reason why we've had so many partners in judicial districts across the state, because people recognize once they started doing this work, they can tell that uh, probationers that we work with, the reason that we see some behaviors that we really struggle with may not be criminogenic in nature. Uh, People who have brain injuries, we say in the field all the time, if you've seen one brain injury, you've seen one brain injury. So how a brain injury impacts somebody's behavior is so wholly unique. However, there are some pretty global things that are happening. And so oftentimes people who struggle with brain injuries may struggle with impulsivity, with reasoning, with problem solving skills. And so we, we, you know, when we look at at how we uh, score an LSI even and how we translate those behaviors, we're trained to translate those behaviors through the lens of criminogenic needs. And really, I think that TBI screening has asked us to widen our aperture and think more holistically about why those behaviors show up. When I started this, you know, when I really started to become interested in brain injuries, it was because I worked with a young man when I was a DYC parole officer and I had seen brain injuries and how they impacted kids and how they showed up. But this one kid in particular started calling me on the phone and he would scream at me and he was so mad and he was upset because I didn't follow through with X, Y, and Z but all of that X, Y, and Z was based on a conversation him and I never had. And his treatment team was convinced that he was psychotic, that he was in need of medication, of psychotropic meds, that he was delusional. And as I've worked with, like I said, my career started working with people who were schizophrenic and I'm like, this kid is not, that's not what's happening. So I really worked hard to advocate that we get a full-blown neuropsych evaluation. Now, this kid was adopted from Russia at the age of 10. He grew up going back and forth from his grandmother's home to Russian orphanages. And by the time we, I've, I've advocated for and got a neuropsych evaluation for him, he had undergone, I would say, anywhere in the range of 14 to 21 evaluations Um, mental health evaluations, educational evaluations, and through all the systems and all the involvement that he'd been in, and nobody ever caught that he had multiple traumatic brain injuries. And that was what was interfering. He wasn't psychotic and he wasn't delusional and he didn't need meds. What he needed was care and he needed his, the professionals in his life to make some small adjustments. He needed 
therapy that took into account the trauma that he'd experienced. So we stopped on a dime and did made a whole bunch of adjustments and shifts in how we coordinated his care and provided his care. And that kid paroled successfully. He paroled into long-term system care that would provide needs for him through adulthood. He discharged parole successfully. And when he, when that youth and I parted ways, it was much different than the days of him calling and screaming at me. He was really upset and said, I feel like I'm losing a mother, but I know that you set me up to be okay for the rest of my life. And I always think about him. I always think about how do we set people up to advocate for people like him who just keep falling through the cracks? Because the way that brain injuries present themselves, they look like criminogenic needs. They look like behavioral health disorders. They look like mental health issues. And people who have brain injuries often um, also struggle with substance use disorders. And so we attribute a lot of that stuff to everything but the brain injury. And so there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of need for us to widen that aperture and really look uh, holistically at the person that we're serving. I'd be really curious if you could just give us a little overview of like what the neuropsych eval is and what makes it different than, than all the other evaluations you've indicated in this story with this individual undergone. And then the other thing is, before you just jump into that, is it fair to say that like the course of treatment or the sanctions imposed up into that point only made his situation worse. So he, we just introduced harm. We harmed this person. We made it even harder for them to overcome this, this traumatic brain injury and maybe exacerbated it. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to answer both of those. And uh, one with it, knowing that it's from a place of editorializing uh, my thoughts and opinions and the other one knowing that it's uh, from a place of mostly ignorance. Uh, I'm not a neuropsychologist, uh, but a neuropsychological exam really looks at the cognitive functioning and where the etiology of where that cognitive functioning changed for the for that person and their brain, uh, how that shifted. And then what are the accommodations that that people can help provide and the person can provide for themselves in order to accommodate for their brain injury. So I think that I think that those accommodations and those recommendations are really paramount to the screening or neuropsychological evaluation process. Neuropsychological evaluations in this in having done this work, I would say probation departments pay anywhere from fifteen hundred to six thousand dollars for a neuropsych eval. And neuropsych evals are really difficult for people who have brain injuries to sit through because they can take eight to 16 hours. So they're um, really intensive, which I think goes towards some of the cost because sometimes the evaluator has to have multiple sessions over multiple days in order to get somebody through that process. So one of the things that we've done through the screening protocol that we've created uh, here in Colorado is to recommend that we've created a brief screening tools so probation probationers can identify which cognitive symptoms they're most bothered by and we can try to skip the screening process altogether and if people need screening um, our partners at the university of denver have created trainings for bachelor and master's level clinicians and case managers to 
do a neuropsychological screen. It's briefer. It gets us to this close to the same end and it's much less expensive, about $400. So I think that it's also important that we recognize that neuropsych exams are not the end all be all, that there are, are other options and there are really creative workarounds that we're always interested in exploring and being open to because the impact is is huge for the system, like from a budgetary and resource standpoint and for the person who undergoes the evaluation. Yeah. So it's, it's but the awareness of even taking something that's a slice of that, the $400 approach and identifying, do we need the next level or you're sort of like ruling things in or out as opposed to maybe 20 years ago, this wasn't even something we considered. Um, No. And quite frankly, even the symptoms questionnaire that we created so that probationers can self-identify if they're bothered by symptoms. We hope that that's maybe the last screening step that a probationer has to go through. That wasn't an option a few years ago. And the only reason we went through all of the jumping through the hoops of creating that tool and that we're continuously having that tool evaluated is because we heard from a chief probation officer, hey, this TBI screen is really important and I really want to do it, but I don't have the resources for neuropsych screening in my judicial district financially or resource-wise. What can we do differently so that we could implement the screening protocol process? And all of us were like, well, I don't know, but we're going to find a solution to your problem. And and I think think we have, but again, it's, you know, it's undergoing constant evaluation. So it, you know, every, every time we get a step closer to something that works really well for everybody. Okay. And then just to this case, and I, I, I know like, I'm not trying to say that we or a system or a group of professionals have introduced harm knowingly. Right. <laughs> but like, it seems to me, even this conversation, as you've said, like, how can we get the right resources everywhere and we can do the screen? Um, it just is an indication to me that, that we would order services that wouldn't match a need because we didn't truly have a grasp on what the true need of the situation was. So in that sense, yeah. were we introducing harm or exacerbating? So like you, you mentioned this individuals in, in a, in a div, div, division of youth corrections facility, probably because they got there because most of the services on the way to DYC weren't really diagnosing and addressing the right issues right and then i'm i'm just imagining a locked facility probably could could just set somebody into a different level of well i don't know if the right word is dysfunction or like their symptoms get worse uh how would you put that and and and, and just something to think about like when we're not yeah. need to the service to need and and how we may create more more problems that actually need to exist i mean i think that there's a lot of lot of contributing factors in this in this case specifically and you know one of them being that most of the examinations that he had undergone and the evaluations pointed everything to the fact that his native language wasn't english and and so i hope now 10 or 15 years later <laughs> you know using a, a lens of equity we recognize that language can't be a barrier for how people are able to access services and engage in education and treatment. And that's not always the answer either. I mean, that how, even at that time, it was pretty mind blowing to me that that was the, that was the answer to everything. And I knew it couldn't be. So, you know, I really pushed uh, to get this kid in evaluation. I think as well, 
you know, I remember distinctly staffing his case and from the very beginning, social services said, we've exhausted our resources and probation said, we've exhausted our resources. He's re- He was previously sentenced to probation and previously under social services care and had completed all of that successfully and then reoffended. And the offense, the reoffending case was pretty minor, but they said, we've exhausted our resources with this kid. He has to go to DYC because you have more resources. And I think that that is enigmatic of larger systemic resource issues. I can't tell you how many times I had a youth committed to DYC and the reason for his his or her commitment was in part due to resource issues and DYC having access to more that the kid needed and or could put them in a locked setting where they had less opportunity to harm themselves. So, you know, I think that that, that just, <laughs> that's just enigmatic of larger systemic issues. This feels like an extreme example, but quite frankly, it's not. Yeah. Okay. So I think we've touched on it, but I want you to kind of maybe flesh it out a little bit more if it makes sense. Some of the common challenges. So we've, we've kind of talked about services and diagnostic tools or assessment tools, evaluation tools have been a challenge. But what other challenges are you seeing with individuals that suffer with TBI? And what are maybe some of the signs that if people, like you said, you knew something was not right, not adding up for you as a professional, but you couldn't really put your finger on it. I mean, like, what are some of the signs? So any other challenges or signs that you think are important to talk about today? Yeah, I think one of the things that I, I get to be a part of because of this work is um, I'm on an, an advisory board. So there's an agency within CDHS and the Office of Adult and Aging Services that focuses on, they, they get funding by tickets and and they provide services for people with brain injuries. And I get to sit on an advisory board with people who both professionally serve this population and have brain injuries, which would be, I'm in that category, and people who are on the advisory board because they have brain injuries and they're there representing a community of people who work to access services within all the agencies that we represent. And I think that one of the things that is really important is is that adage of you've seen one brain injury and you've seen one brain injury. How they show up, how that impacts people's lives is all over the place. I mean, and I think one of the things that has been really eye-opening about that is everybody's injury is different. Everybody's functioning post-injury is different. What the, what the um, rehabilitation looks like It's just all over the board. And it's because, you know, brains are such a special organ and they're so complex and we know so little about them. It's like the ocean of the body. So I, you know, I really hesitate to even say, look for this one thing because it's so complex and it's so individualized. You know, I think if somebody, one of the things that I ended up having to do for myself is create a crosswalk between indicators of brain injuries and indicators of criminogenic needs so that I could see Maybe if somebody, I think that they have this criminogenic need and I'm staffing a case and it sounds like this, could it also be uh, some signs of impairment from brain injury? And, you know, sometimes people have light and noise sensitivity. And so I've talked to some judicial officers about maybe be okay with letting people wear sunglasses and a hat in your courtroom or to have headphones on their head because 
there are sometimes I've been in courtrooms and they're so loud. And if you have noise sensitivity or tinnitus because of a brain injury, that must be maddening. So, you know, when people need brain breaks and, and a lot of people take afternoon naps and so scheduling hearings in the morning for them and hearing their case and letting them leave or having people write things down. I, you know, I heard a woman talk about one day that one of her accommodations was that she took her own notes instead of people giving her notes because she had such significant short-term impairment, memory impairment that she would go to her appointments and come home and throw her papers on the table and take a nap and wake up and forget about all of that and be like, what is this? And toss it in the garbage. And when she took her notes, she'd wake up and look at her notes and go, oh, this is in my handwriting. I maybe need to believe this stuff and then (laughs) follow through with it. And she said, had she not learned that she had a brain injury and learned how to provide her own accommodations, she would not have completed probation successfully. She'd be in prison. So, you know, I think that it's just so all over the place, uh, Bill, it's really hard for me to give a very clean answer to that question. Well, I feel like you have, and I think it's a, it's, it's an actually something that people can remember. If you've seen one brain injury, you've seen one brain injury, <laughs> but if you're seeing something you can't explain, put this in the possibility, right? Like you might, you might want to have some considerations of it. Yeah. Um, I haven't heard that before. I haven't been to your trainings, but that's a good one. Um, I think because we like to bunch things together as human beings and even in systems to try to find efficiencies. And oh, if you've seen one, you've seen them all. No, you haven't seen them all. You've only seen one and it will look different for someone else. Yeah, not with brain injuries. Yeah. Talk about crimi- you talked about the combination of crimi- like connecting the criminogenic needs and looking through a lens of TBI. And so just for the audience, just for the folks who maybe aren't working with the criminogenic needs, you know, I've, I've been in some, some projects in the past where like people hear the word criminogenic and they think we're making people criminals or it's something that's sort of labeling a person. And, and that's not the point. That's the nomenclature. That's what's been used. But could you just describe when you're talking about, you're looking at those criminogenic factors, needs, what that means, just so we can have that baseline too. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the, you know, the field of criminal justice, I think, has gone through a lot of changes uh, since Martinson published his seminal work about nothing works. So um, what year was that, by the way? That I think was 1975. Uh, yeah. Just 45 years ago or so. Right. Yeah. And uh, since then, there's been a, you know, a lot of research around the risk-need-responsivity model that was created by Andrews and Bonta, um, and they're researchers in Canada. Andrews has since passed, and Bonta is still with us. And they have identified really what does work to help people be supported in long-term behavior change and working their way out of criminal justice supervision for their life course. And that is about assessing for risk and need and People who are higher risk should get more of our time and our resources and our energy. And we should focus that time and resources and energy on the areas that led to that person criminally offending. Now, those those reasons for the criminal offending are criminogenic in nature. That's why they're called criminogenic needs. So it's really about how we interpret a set of behaviors and then and categorize them like you're talking about. How do we categorize them into areas where we can focus skill development, right? Because people come in to the criminal justice system because they have a set of maladaptive skills that have worked 
in a lot of ways to help them navigate society and keep them alive and help them get their basic needs met. And so we're trying to help them replace those maladaptive behaviors with adaptive behaviors that will help them be successful in the communities in which they live without needing criminal justice supervision. The hard part about that is the responsivity principle, which is the least studied of the three principles and where brain injury comes into play. Using, it's it's really about not only what makes a person an individual, what makes you special, Bill, what makes you different than me? It is also about how do we use cognitive behavioral theories and principles to help people learn more pro-social skills to get their needs met and replace those maladaptive behaviors. And how do we make sure systemically that there's resources available to make sure that we have enough to meet each individual's needs? So we don't want women going to a domestic violence survivor group about cognitive behavioral interventions with maybe some men who are on probation for sexually offending, right? Like we would want to separate those two groups and we may want to refine them even further. So it's really about there's there's general responsivity, which is about using cognitive behavioral interventions. There's individual responsive responsivity, which is what makes me individual from you and anybody else on supervision. And then there's systemic responsivity, which is an availability of resources. The reason I think that brain injury is, it's such a nice way to sort of kick the responsivity door open is in our research that we did with our partners at DU and at MindSource and Brain Injury Alliance of Colorado, when we started this screening work and looking at prevalence rates, one of the things that we found is that in comparison to the general population, people with brain injuries have a super high overrepresentation of school suspension, childhood trauma, adult victimization, mental health disorders, substance use disorders, and suicidality. And we know that some of that is true in the brain injury community, regardless of criminal justice supervision, but it's as if we just put a flame under it and really heighten all of that. And so it's not just about paying attention to the brain injury. At this point, if you have somebody who screens positive for a history of brain injury, then you need to really be paying attention to the fact that there is likely co-occurring trauma, mental health disorders, substance use disorders, and and victimization. Um, So by the time, if somebody, the screening protocol process that we created, an officer screens for lifetime history of brain injury, and then they use the symptoms questionnaire to screen for cognitive symptoms that the person may be bothered by, at that point, we don't care why they're bothered by those symptoms. They could be bothered by them because of trauma, because of their mental health disorder, because of substance use issues. I don't care. Screen for it and <laughs> provide some accommodations for it. And so TBI screen is just a clean, easy tool to use. It's a nice, it's a nice tool to use. And it helps us really, again, widen the aperture of how we're viewing this person through a lens of responsivity so that we can identify how using that lens of responsivity, how do we really address those criminogenic needs in a way that will work for them? You know, working on the advisory board with people who are both professionals and community members with brain injuries, it's really interesting to hear different stories about how people feel as if they have fallen through the cracks, and rightfully so, they have fallen through the cracks, just like the example that I gave you of that young man. That's how most people with brain injuries feel, and 
that I I think that I think that where Colorado Judicial has a killer opportunity is that we don't let people fall through our cracks, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Like we're gonna we recognize that by the time you hit our doors, you may have fallen through the cracks educationally and with mental health agencies and uh, with substance use screening and uh, you know all of this other stuff. Those systems are working to be better at this too. But the buck stops here. We're not going to let you keep falling through those cracks. Yeah. And that's, and that's sort of, um, you said you weren't even doing this three or four years ago. So this is new to ju- Colorado judicial is what you're, what we're doing now, even new to the field of probation. Um, are, I mean, are we, are we on the edge of this movement or are we coming, you know, are we, we found out about it and we're kind of catching up, but like it, is this something that is relatively new to, you mentioned the field of criminal justice. It wasn't happening in mm-hmm. 1975. That's for sure. No, nope. but where was it? It sounds like it hasn't even been happening since 2010 or 2015 nationally. Well, this is, I love, I'm so happy you asked me this question. Cause this is like straight to my ego, right? This, <laughs> when I started with judicial uh, about eight or nine, nine years ago, I, one of my first things that I got to work on was hosting a regional conference for probation uh, districts. And Denver Juvenile said, hey, we are working with this agency, MindSource, to screen uh, juvenile probationers for brain injury. And we want to collaborate with MindSource and do a presentation. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. I mean, considering the impact that I saw of brain injuries on the youth that I supervised at DYC. I was like, yes, absolutely. So Kira Gaines and Judy Detmer came and did a presentation. And I had said to uh, my supervisor at the time, Scott Smith, I said, look, this is this is huge. And I really want to build on this. And he said, well, we'll get uh, training evaluations. So let's wait and see what happens. So I gave everybody training evaluations and they were clamoring for more. They were like, we need more. We need more than this. I was like, sweet. So I started hosting these uh, brain injury conferences, like mini conferences within judicial. Um, I worked with Brenity and uh, probation stakeholders in the district and and court staff. And and we hosted two two day conferences. At the same time, the University of Denver and MindSource got a grant and the Brain Injury Alliance of Colorado was a partner on the grant. They're a nonprofit, by the way, um, and Judicial and Office of Behavioral Health. And that grant, uh, we got it based off of some work that Kim Gorgans out of the University of Denver did screening inmates in Denver County Jail for history of brain injury. And it was, the prevalence rate was insane. And so we partnered on this grant with the eye of, we're, we're not just screening, we're screening to an end. And that is to make people's lives better and to set them up for success in a different way. So then we all started working uh, to create what is now known as the Colorado Screening Protocol. The original grant was uh, we trained probation officers to screen for a lifetime history of brain injury. And then if they tested positive, uh, Kim's master's level clinician students came in and did uh, neuropsych screens to look at cognitive impairment. And that's when the chief probation officer said to me, this is really cool, but I can't do it because we don't have those resources in our district. So then we uh, borrowed a questionnaire from uh, Sarah Britton, who I'm on the BIAC board with, and she uh, let us adapt it for use in Colorado probation. And so now 
Um, the screening protocol is screening for lifetime history, screening for uh, what bo- what symptoms bother the person. And then an officer goes in or whoever does that screen, they go into a website hosted by MindSource, enter all of that in, the website uh, scores it up and emails the officer back and says, here are some areas where this person may be bothered by cognitive symptoms. And it's a one page tip sheet that's easily understood. It's written at a sixth grade level. We partnered with University of Denver students to write these and they give the probationer those tip sheets so that they can start learning what accommodations they need to ask for, how to ask for them, what habits they can do, what small tweaks can they bring into their lives to accommodate for the symptoms of their brain injury. And in that four-year ACL grant, we also created a psychoeducational group that it can be facilitated by anybody, a probation officer, a mental health clinician, doesn't matter who. And uh, it's a seven-module curriculum. And it is open group and people can come in and out as they need to. And it's designed to teach them how to provide their own accommodations to um, to account for their brain injury. And I think one of the things that I've learned through this, poor Judy uh, is so patient with me. She had to say this to me about 20 times before it really sunk in, but you don't treat a brain injury. You always have a brain injury. So we're providing accommodations for something that will exist for somebody for the rest of their lives. And I think the other thing that's really special about one of the things that came out of this grant work was we had a clinician pilot that had group. We had probation departments pilot it. You know, we the seven module psychoed group, and the clinician recognized that for a lot of the probation recognized this as well. But for a lot of the people that we screen, this is the first time they find out that they have a brain injury, and so she added a grief module because finding out that you have a brain injury requires that you change the way that you look and see yourself. Um, and probationers, I've heard a lot of probationers talk about how their reaction was, wait a second, I have a, I have a brain injury. Um, so I actually am smoking pot, not because I'm a loser, but I legitimately am in pain all the time. Like my headaches, I'm not making them up. And this did happen to me and this, that wasn't okay. And yeah, it creates this sort of normalization of things that people have been experiencing and the way that the people that they've interacted with have told them that they're experiencing that stuff is because yeah, they're a loser. They're not good enough. All this shame-based language. It's like, no, this is normal and this is natural and you've had a brain injury and you may have received it in violent circumstances. So let's let's set that playing field and make this even for you. And it's a pretty impactful and powerful thing for people to go through. It sounds like what you're saying is they, they really get to redefine the narrative that maybe that they've had about themselves that, that others had given them for yeah. all the, all the reasons. And now they can take some power back in of their own life and understand I'm not inherently bad. I don't have any, I might have an inherent brain injury that doesn't make me a bad person. There's ways that I could live that, that, cope with this and to accommodate this 100 percent. and yeah. and we're talking and was i'm hearing you talk about this and that was part of the reason i think i asked the question about criminogenic you don't need to be involved in a criminal justice system to have these tools identify a brain injury right it could be we actually could move this way upstream so that people never hopefully end up in our in our probation departments <laughs> in our courts if maybe they were actually properly diagnosed with 
hey, why do you have the third suspension in school today? Well, um, you know, let's let's take this kid who let's just say a 14 year old and we realize, oh, this 14 year old is not just inherently a bad person. He has a brain injury, maybe or she has a brain injury. And let's start dealing with that and maybe divert and prevent. Is that is that true? I mean, this to the listener who's not working in criminal justice, maybe juvenile justice, or maybe somebody who's thinking about, oh, I see some behaviors uh, in truancy court or something like this. Yeah. This is this doesn't have to rise to the level of criminal justice, even juvenile justice. Like, um, and 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 I don't expect all the listeners to figure out a way to solve this, but are you seeing? <laughs> But are you seeing this? You mentioned child, the Department of Human Services has a unit, but that didn't sound like necessarily the child welfare part of the system. But are you starting to see more systems, service providers, this awareness? Because from your, your explanation, it sounds like we are kind of cutting edge. This is work that you're doing, and, and it's taken a lot of people to get here, and it's about a decade in, and it's still pretty darn new. Yeah. So, I mean, that you don't have to be involved in a criminal justice or a juvenile justice system for this to maybe be relevant. And I just want to make sure folks don't hear criminogenic and keep thinking it's just crime. Yeah, I think, Bill, I love that you asked that question. I mean, so, yes, I think from a criminal justice standpoint, we're on the cutting edge of this research. Um, you know, in juvenile justice systems, the prevalence rate is around 20%. You compare that in the general population, we're looking at about 8% of people have brain injuries. When you, as you sort of increase the depth of the criminal justice system, prisoners have the highest rate, juvenile probationers have the lowest rate, and it follows pretty linearly like that, with one exception, women um, have about a 97% prevalence rate of brain injuries. And I think one of the things that's really important. Women in general or women that are in our systems? Women in our system. Okay. Okay. And I think one of the things that's really important to note about that is that their their trajectory of rehabilitation is also much more poor because of the very violent circumstances in which they get their brain injury and within because of the repetitive nature. So uh, instead of getting a sports concussion and then having six months to heal and being kept home from school and all of that uh, to rest, women women uh, probationers tend to get their brain injuries in violent circumstances where they receive them very quickly in quick repetition. And uh, the the doctor at the University of Denver that we partnered with did a TED talk about all of our research and one of the findings that she shared in that TED talk is that these women have cognitive impairment that uh, mirrors that of an NFL linebacker. So I think that, you know, we can think about the linear relationship between where you're at in the criminal justice system and the prevalence of brain injuries with that caveat. And I think that that's a pretty important one. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, is, yep, we're on the cutting edge in Colorado, which is super cool. Pennsylvania is taking, picking this up. New Mexico is doing some of it. It's showing up in small pockets in other places, but we're definitely on the front end of the pack. We're clearly early adopters with this, which is really awesome. And part of what I think is really great about that is in this partnership, we've worked, we've had a very, very clear purpose of everything that we create is open source and anybody can take it and run with it. So somebody in Washington state could say, can I have your ahead curriculum? And I'm like, yep, here you go. And none of it, none of it is at cost to another agency. So 
we have a lot of other groups, uh, child welfare groups, mental health groups all over the country who use the symptoms questionnaire, who adapt the screening protocol process that we created for their agencies. So it's really nice to know that how it's permeating lots of other areas. Also, I think that Colorado Department of Education actually in some ways is a leader in some of this because they have created brain steps teams and they cultivate uh, expertise in school districts across the state about brain injuries and how to adjust services for uh, kids in schools. And that's some of what we've tried to work to replicate in Colorado probation. So we're trying to learn from them. And I think the other thing that's important is that the MindSource Advisory Board is really paying attention to how do we permeate screening without over-screening and how do we assess for gaps in screening across multiple systems and and shore those gaps up. So, uh, you know, I think that the MindSource Advisory Board is doing a really nice job of that work. Um, and there is a lot of attention being paid to this. And I think one of the great things about this work is that it has um, shined such a huge spotlight on the impact of brain injuries and how it shows up in, I think, our most marginalized uh, populations, which includes people on criminal justice supervision. Mm, Yeah. Well, the the number you shared about the female probation seems to me like you've you've reached the point where you, you need, you probably should screen everybody out, like, instead of in because it's just so prevalent that it should be just almost like we're going to, we're going to start this process assuming that there's going to be a positive screen because 97%, that's like off the charts. Like do you see anything like that in, in probationers anywhere? I mean, it's, it seems almost impossible to believe 97%. Yeah, I think. I mean, I believe it, but you, you get what I'm saying. You don't normally see data that. I know. Um, it's, you can't ignore it. No, you can't. And interestingly, you know, parallel to all of this, Anne DePrince out of the University of Denver is also uh, studying uh, prevalence of um, brain injuries in, with victims of interpersonal violence. And how does that show up? And, and so some of her findings are about how victim service officers will go to um, calls with police officers and work with the victim and say, here are your resources and this is how the courts can help you. And uh, show up to court on this day and you can ask for what you need. And it's it's very similar to what we see for people on probation supervision. They're like, I don't, they just, they'll nod and smile, but it's, I don't understand this or what to do with it at all. Um, and, and so we, I think, uh, again, I think that it's a great opportunity for Colorado Judicial to show up and say, we're going to do, we're going to do better. We're going to lead the. We're going to lead the pack. We have great research partners. We're getting great grant funding. Quite frankly, it's gotten a ton of attention by the from the news. I mean, all this work's been written up in Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report and Denver Post and Colorado Public Radio and on and on. And so, I think that because of that and because of our great research partners, we'll keep getting grants and we'll keep being able to study. And I think the partnerships that we have forged are are. Uh, beyond important because everybody always has an eye on are we making the lives of the people that we're screening who screen positive better by having us in their lives and we ask those people for feedback all the time it's not just us saying hey we think we're doing a great job but it's hey probationer uh did this help you 
were you were you able to uh, succeed and were you able to find success and find thriving in a way that you define it, not us? Because um, we define thriving as like, did we reduce your criminogenic risk and did you successfully complete probation? And, you know, the recent most recent research that we did, we found that people who have brain injuries and, and probation have higher risk, uh, are on higher supervision levels. Uh, are less likely to complete probation supervision successfully and more likely to recidivate. So it's also the group of people that we really, from a criminogenic lens, want to give our most time and resources to because uh, like they say, they fall through systems gaps. I think that they they also run a high risk of getting stuck in our revolving door. Mm. And yeah. just what comes to mind when you said is like, we don't want to overscreen. And we also, when we screen and we identify needs, I think courts and probation are probably in the same boat. Like sometimes we're really good at identifying a problem, but we don't have the service or the resource to address it. So we just end up labeling a person and not really doing uh, doing right by them. And so you're asking them, like, is this making your life better now that we've actually put another label on you? Um, yeah. But it sounds like when done properly, it gives people actually a moment to really look about themselves differently. And it gives us as professionals the opportunity to serve their needs and not be stuck with why is nothing really working here or what's I mean, that note that that, that story about the woman throwing away the notes in someone else's handwriting is like makes perfect sense. She didn't know what it was. Like, why do I have this in my house? Throw it away. She sees her own and she takes note. Oh, maybe I need to t- take a look at this. I mean, it's this has been a really enlightening conversation on so many levels. I did not know. I, I honestly did not know you had this level. I, I remember, I have this vague memory of when these trainings were rolled out and hearing people like really rave about it, but you've taken it from training and awareness to implementing protocols, to serving people differently, to finding out if those services are actually meeting their needs. And I would imagine when you get feedback, something isn't working, you're trying to adjust the protocols. So yeah. This is really exciting, and I hope for the audience that's listening, they're learning something new, or, Same. Um, or, or they're, or they're, they're, they're noticing that the work they're doing is being honored because it's, it sounds so very impactful, and it obviously is very important. Yeah, our probation departments uh, deserve a gigantic round of applause for participating in these pilot processes and these research projects and they don't get workload value credit for it. They're doing it because they truly believe it's the right thing to do and the best way to serve the people that are sentenced to probation in their judicial districts. And um, they're, they're the ones doing all the work and they deserve all the credit, quite frankly. Yeah. yeah. So shout out to all the probation departments across the state and the work you're doing. And um, I think we've talked about the, I think through this conversation, talking about risk and need levels and the flexibility that's needed is all there, but I just want to, you know, I think we're getting near the end. I just want to make sure if there's anything that I didn't ask you or that you were expecting to talk about today that you didn't, I didn't, didn't get a chance to address that you can do that now. I think the only thing I would add to what we talked about is that there's also an impact on the professionals who learn all of this and take this on. I learned about my own brain injuries uh, and I uh, see that get replicated every time we do a training where people in the audience sit there and go, oh, oh, and their wheels are turning. And those experiences in which people get brain injuries are often also traumatic. And so really thinking about it, you know, we want to um, engage probationers from a lens of trauma-informed care. And I think that 
our implementation, we try to do that. But I think that long-term, that's really important for us to pay attention to and for judicial management teams and judicial districts to pay attention to around how do we do this in a way that supports people as they go through their own discovery process about maybe having uh, had brain injuries and, and how that shows up in their lives. All right. Yeah. So top three takeaways for taking action or one big takeaway for taking action you choose for the audio of today's episode of Beyond the Collabo Babble. Uh, I think my, uh, I have three. The first one is imp- implementation equity is really important. Um, so engage the voices of people at all uh, levels of the screening protocol process of so the people who are doing the work and the people who are being screened um, and be really open to adjusting to get people what they need to make this work well. And uh, the second one is please be open to screening for brain injuries. And if it's something that you can't take on, know that there are lots of free supports uh, available. So if people need connected to those, they should just email me. There's all sorts of things out there for people who have brain injuries uh, who are and are not involved in the justice system. Uh, There's about half a million people in Colorado who live with brain injuries. And we want to make sure that we set everybody up to thrive. And the last one is take care of yourself uh, and doing this work. Cause if there's, if you're not taking care of yourself, you don't have anything to give and uh, serving others is a lot of work and it really requires that we serve each other and take care of ourselves. Uh, I was really nervous, and I think uh, this is, you know, total credit to you, Bill. You do such a nice job of just making this conversational and feel really comfortable. And so, uh, thank you for that. Oh, thank you, and, and I I enjoyed this, and and thank you again for sharing this information. That, you know, hopefully, like for me today, I've learned so much. I can't wait to go back and just re-listen to this because there's a lot in there I didn't know about. What is your favorite thing or place in Colorado? Uh, I mean, my favorite place in Colorado is Ure. It's just, it's like a little slice of, yeah, it's so gorgeous. It's just like magical. So yeah, that's my favorite place. It's a good choice. Uh, it is a great place. Uh, I visited there last summer a few times and never disappoints. Never. Where is somewhere in the world that you dream of visiting one day? Croatia. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, I've been twice. I highly recommend Croatia. Good to know. What? Why is Croatia on your list? Just out of curiosity. It has been for uh, the longest time. I mean, you know, when I first learned of its existence, it was a very war ravaged country. And, uh, but when I was looking at pictures, I was like, well, this place is really gorgeous. And uh, yeah, it's been on my bucket list ever since. It's been on my bucket list since before it was really popular to go. Uh, so I'm really hopeful I can make it there and take my kids. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think it's a, a wonderful place. I, I actually dream of like moving to Croatia one day and living on the coast and being near the sun and the salt water. But I hope you do that and that you accept house guests. Yeah. Maybe I'll start a hostel, you know, if I could, I would. <laughs> I'll be there. Okay. Um, what is your perfect meal? Uh, my husband and I have, uh, two other couples that we have a supper club with and every few months, not every few months, every few weeks, you know, six weeks or so, we would go try a new restaurant 
And it was so fun. And that is my favorite meal is all of us being together and uh, trying new food and just connecting and hanging out with one another. And I cannot wait until we can do it again. I'm so excited. Yeah. Gosh, hopefully it's maybe this summer, huh? Maybe this summer it'll be safe and and back to normal and as normal, whatever that means. Yeah. But yeah, that sounds like a, a fun adventure that you're looking forward to as well. Okay, last question. What is something you believed for a long time that you later found to be untrue? Um, I, I mean, I find out something new that I always thought was untrue every single day. I married the like smartest guy I know, and uh, he proves me wrong regularly. I think, um, though, on a, <laughs> on a like, really specific note, I always thought that I would never have kids. And... Uh, obviously i i mean i have two now and i i love being a parent i thought i would be just the worst uh mom and not enjoy it at all and it's like the most fun thing i've ever done in my life and i love every minute of it even the ones that are really rough i really enjoy oh wow that's yeah that's a no one's answered it quite that way so it's a <laughs> but it's a, it's a it's it's fun i like that and thank you again uh, Russia for joining today and I think this is a good place to end and and maybe we'll talk again in the future as as things continue to develop and this this uh, this this initiative starts to get more and more attention it sounds like it's it's getting a lot now but it sounds like we're on the right path so thank you thank you so much this is great well that's it for this episode of beyond the collab battle listen Learn, listen, lead, learn, take action. Listen, take action. Learn, listen, learn, take action. Listen, learn, listen, learn, take action. Learn, listen, learn, take action. Learn, listen, learn, take action.